Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to uh, our next installment as we continue our series taking a look at Jesus' manifesto for human flourishing. Uh, I believe that the Sermon on the Mount and what we're taking a look at in Matthew chapter 5, it also goes on in Matthew chapter 6 and 7, but we won't get to those chapters in this series this time around. But I believe that it um, addresses what it looks like to actually be present in this counter-cultural kingdom. It is different, it's upside down, it's inside out. Uh, in fact, one of the ways that we know sometimes that we're not... Um, uh, necessarily experiencing the relationship with God that is available to us is when our emotions and our values are exactly the same as someone that doesn't have a relationship with God. And what we're getting into the next few weeks is where Jesus actually starts to get really practical and he unpacks um, some of the principles that are that, that he's listeners were familiar with in the Old Testament and he takes it a lot further into saying what, what this actually should be looking like for this generation. Last Sunday, uh, Graham, our senior pastor, took a look at a short passage of scripture that made reference to the fact that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. And then this hugely challenging phrase in there which says that unless uh, you obey, so unless you practice and obey, depending on the version that you're reading, and teach others to do the same, you'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. So it's not saying that you won't be in the kingdom, but it says that you'll be least. In, in other words, it's not just about knowing and, and believing, it's actually about doing. And then in verse 20, this is a part that has actually stuck with me for a while. Like I've, I've, I've kept going back to this idea of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 20. He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness, so your, your godliness, your relationship, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's hard for us to fully appreciate how radical that statement would have been for the listeners of Jesus on that mountain on the side of the Sea of Galilee 2,000 years ago. Because for every person that was in any way familiar with Judaism, there would have been this reverence, this awe, this, this appreciation for just how, not only how well the Pharisees and teachers of the law knew God's law. In fact, that added a whole bunch more to it. But as far as they were concerned, they actually lived it out. So they, they appeared to live very righteous lives. They looked as though they were pious. They looked as though they prayed a lot. They looked as though they were modest and generous and, and they fasted regularly. And Jesus was saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that, the only way that that can be explained is he's saying that unless our hearts are more for God. Unless, unless, unless our hearts are humble and we're actually closing the gap between our intentions and our actions, 
we're going to be no different to the Pharisees. And then he starts with what we're going to get into today and over the next few weeks, where he actually uses six examples of where the, the Pharisees and, and those familiar with the law would have, would have heard terms like, don't murder, uh, don't commit adultery, things like that. And he says, yes, like you've heard that, but it means a whole bunch more. And so we're starting off with the first of those six examples today. We're probably in your Bible, uh, the heading would probably simply be murder or something to do with murder, but actually what Jesus is talking about is addressing a heart of anger and reconciliation, of anger and reconciliation. And the challenge for us, the, the question that, that I'd love for us to reflect on is whether or not I am as concerned about my attitude as what I am about my actions. Am I as concerned about my attitude as what I am about my actions? The reason I say that is because a lot of the time, especially, I'm, I'm talking to those of you that might have been in a relationship with God for a while, so you kind of know how to act, or at least how to act around people who know that you're a Christian. Am I, am I primarily concerned with my actions, so looking the part, or am I equally or more burdened with my actual attitude? Am I concerned with my heart? Because I would argue that God cares more about our heart first and our actions second, because I think having the right heart, having the right attitude will actually lead to the right actions. So constantly throughout the series, I want us to be checking our heart, checking our attitude. So picking up from Matthew chapter five, verse 25, and the New International Version says, this is Jesus speaking, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So probably everyone listening is like, yeah, cool, okay, I, I won't murder. And you know, we feel proud, there's a tick. But I say to you, or I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, before you panic, because there wouldn't be a single person listening to this or watching that doesn't experience anger. I wanna clarify that there is a difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. So, so when we read this English translation, we, we only have one English word for the original word, and so it's, been, you know, it's kind of easy to read this and think, okay, so should I never be angry? Like, am I sinning if I care about injustice, if I get angry at corruption, if I get angry at looting, if I get angry, angry at, at, at uh, racism or prejudice or, or, or when someone's being mistreated? No, there is righteous anger and there's unrighteous anger. What, what this word is actually referring to, according to Warren Wiersbe, is malice that is nursed inwardly. So, so it's like when, you, when, when you're feeling this rage and I keep nursing it, like I'm just, I'm just keeping this, you, you, know, you know when you have some water on the stove and you just, you know, you, you maybe can turn the heat down a bit, but just enough to keep it just bubbling. Or John Stott describes it this way, the reference of Jesus is to unrighteous anger, the anger of pride. Think about that for a moment, because it's very hard to be angry without also being proud. It's the anger of pride, vanity, hatred, malice, and revenge. Or as one commentary described it, anger here refers to a seething, brooding bitterness against a brother 
or a sister? Because I want you to pay attention, by the way, that Jesus is referring to, to this attitude towards a brother or a sister. In other words, this is to someone else that's in the family of God, someone else that's in the faith. Martin Luther King Jr. reflected on uh, the teaching, this particular portion of Jesus' teaching in his book, Stride Toward Freedom, where he encouraged his followers to avoid not only violence of deed, but violence of spirit. Not only violence of deed, but violence of spirit. So again, he's getting to the heart. And by the way, if, if we even begin to imagine what it was like for, for those in the civil rights movement, and, and of course we have a, a more recent history of this here in South Africa, it's one thing, it's one thing to, like I think it's miraculous, personally, <laughs> to actually commit to nonviolence in the physical, but to actually guard your heart so that you don't get violent in your spirit where you hate, that's, in my opinion, that's not natural or, or possible in the natural. I think that we need God, and I think that that's the point that Jesus is making. For us to actually guard our hearts, that we can get angry at what matters, but not hate the person. Ephesians 4 verse 26, this is one of the early apostles, one of the early church leaders writing in the New Testament. In one of the letters called Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, he says, don't sin by letting anger control you. I think that's one of the ways that we know that, okay, anger is now becoming sin. Don't let anger control you. Then he uses a metaphor saying, don't let the sun go down while you, were still, while you are still angry. Now, I used to think that that was literal, so Sue and I, when we were first dating and married, used to stay up until early hours of the morning and Sue would be falling asleep, and I'd still be trying to resolve stuff. I thought, okay, even though the sun had literally gone down, we were trying not to go to sleep at least until we had, you know, resolved stuff. I don't, I don't think it's quite as literal anymore. I think the point, though, is, is don't let this linger. Don't let this just go on. Sometimes, practically speaking, there's wisdom to maybe closing the book for today, getting some rest, and maybe picking it up again when you're less exhausted and less, you know, irritable. But the idea is, is don't, don't just give up on it and, and allow it to continue. For anger, look at verse 27. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. That is a crazy sobering passage. That is an incredibly challenging, sobering statement for those of us that feel justified in allowing ourselves to nurse a seething, brooding, vengeful, bitter, hateful anger. We may be pleasing one person and one person only, and that's the enemy. Let's not give a foothold. Let's not give space to the enemy to corrupt our heart. Because, you see, we may be right about the issue, but we can be wrong in our heart. And, and, and even though we're not committing murder, we are actually bringing death to our souls and possibly to the souls of others because it's hard to hate and not pass that on to those that are closest to you. Very, very, very hard not to pass that bitterness on, not to pass that hatred on to those that are around you. So Jason's definition of righteous versus unrighteous anger or holy versus unholy anger is simply this. Holy anger, I think, is where we care about the sin. So where we feel strongly about the action, about the behavior. So we should hate racism. We should hate crime. We should hate injustice. We should hate corruption. We, we, it's okay to feel strong about the behavior, but unholy anger, I believe, is when that turns into... Where, where that attitude is about the person, so where we hate people, when we're angry against people in the sense of where we, whether we realize it or not, start dehumanizing that person. 
that I believe is the difference between holy and unholy anger, is whether or not it's against the behavior or whether or not it's against the person. So three key ideas I think that is brought across in this, in this particular passage in Matthew 5. The first is simply that my heart matters. My heart matters. I know we know this, so please be careful that you don't just switch off and, and that you're not inoculated. Our hearts matter. Killing is a terrible sin, but this type of anger that we're talking about is a great sin too because it violates God's command to love. The moment I start hating, the moment I start nurturing bitterness, rage, revenge, holding on to a grudge, nursing that grudge, like it's a guilty pleasure, I am violating the core of the gospel, the core of what it means to to be loved by God and to love him back, that is to reject love, to violate love. Jesus goes on in the second half of Matthew 5, verse 22. He says, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. That, that term, raka, we, people have tried to give you know, uh, synonyms for it that might be in English, it could be idiot, it could be you a-hole, it could be son of a dog, you know, whatever. But, but you see, I think we're too familiar with insults that we don't quite appreciate the, the meaningfulness of it. Essentially, that word rocker is a term of contempt. So, so when, I, and we live in a culture of contempt. We live in such an angry culture, at least if you're, if you're on any kind of media. If, you, if you're reading the, the comments at the bottom of a news feed or, or on a social media post or, or on Twitter, there's, there's just so much anger. People that shouldn't have a public platform have been given a public platform by social media, and, so, and, and we give weight to every... Anyway, let me not get distracted. It is a term of contempt. It is... It is dismissing it, dehumanizing, lowering that person's value. That person's answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, that term you fool, in fact, I like how the New Living Translation actually makes reference to, to, it doesn't say you fool, it says if you curse someone. Because actually, again, you see, to say you fool in English is like, uh, you fool, you know, don't be an idiot, don't be a curse. Like, we don't think it's that big a deal, but actually what Jesus is addressing here is where for all intents and purposes, we're allowing our anger to so dehumanize the person, to so harshly condemn the person that we are actually judging them to a lost eternity. Now, we may not realize that at the time. That may not be exactly what we have at the forefront of our minds, but it is amazing how we can actually curse people. We can curse someone when we shift their identity from who God has made them to be and we identify them with one element of their behavior that we strongly disagree with or maybe even hate. So maybe you hate that behavior, but when I allow the hatred for that behavior to become about writing that person off, maybe if I really unpack it subconsciously, I'm thinking, well, well, that person isn't worthy of grace and mercy. Well, no one's worthy of grace and mercy. Or that person, that person is so far from God, or that person is so far from, from, from doing what is right. And, and, and the reality is that that might be the case, but the Bible tells us that we need to leave that kind of judgment to God. And when I take on the role of judge and jury, 
I'm saying, God, you, you, you can take a break. I'm going to get involved. And I am judging and condemning this person to a lost eternity, even though I may not be consciously thinking that. And so I have to ask myself, when I'm feeling strongly about, about an issue, when I'm feeling strongly about people, about, especially when it comes to corrupt politicians and, and, and people that are exploiting and damaging and hurting and harming others, I've got, to, I've got to check my heart whether or not I am managing to feel strongly about the behavior or am I starting to devalue and dehumanize the person. If I do that, what Jesus is saying here is that that is an attitude that is fit only for the rubbish dump. The reason he's saying is because that term uh, where, where he comments on you'll be in danger of the fire of hell, that word hell in the original language is actually the word Gehenna, which was a portion of the city just south of Jerusalem where in the Old Testament people like King uh, I think it was Ahaz and Manasseh, actually burnt their children alive. So, so, so this is a place where human sacrifices were exercised towards the God of Molech. And what happened over time after King Josiah came into being, he turned that into a rubbish dump where, the fire, where a fire was constantly burning to actually consume this rubbish. So, so it came to be known as a metaphor or, or, or description of eternal judgment. Jesus is saying that if I think that I am able to condemn someone else, I'm in danger of condemning myself. Guys, this matters. Like this seriously matters. This is such a challenge for me to check my heart for you to check your heart. Am I feeling strongly about behavior and am I, am I willing to deal with it and, and address it as, as far as is possible or am I starting to actually write that person off? How much more so when that is actually a fellow brother or sister? Just a couple of very quick tips on how to avoid sin, uh, sinning when I'm angry. One is just to slow down. Too often, I think, I think a speedy response when I'm actually feeling angry is often the most destructive. James 1 verse 20 says, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must be quick to listen, slow to speak, that's often a challenge for me, and slow to get angry. Like, let's just slow down. You might need to go for a walk or a run or do some push-ups. I don't know. You may, you may need to do anything that just helps, even just physically, to actually just process some of the stress that you're feeling. If I want to avoid that anger turning into something sinful, I need to slow down. John Markhamer says that there's little that can be done with anger that can't be done better without it. So even if you are valid in, validated in the issue that you're wanting to address, let's try and address it with a heart that is constructive. So we need to slow down. Next would be simply to pray first. I think so much damage would be avoided if I actually just sincerely, genuinely slow down and ask God to check my heart and to help me where I need it and, and, and to actually pray for the other person. It's hard to hate someone that you're praying for. So let's pray first. Michael J. Wilkins said that the battle is waged in the mind. So our minds might be going crazy, but the war is for our hearts. So you may be struggling with your thoughts, but make no mistake, that's, that's not the real territory that's being fought for. Our hearts or what he's being fought for. So we need to slow down, pray first, and then reflect on my own responsibility and limits. So God, I have to always look in the mirror first. What's my responsibility? And 
What are my limits? Sometimes I want to own and nurture and, and, and care about and do something about something that's actually not my responsibility. And that's one of the challenges that we have in, in having a 24-hour news cycle where we're able to access anything that's happening anywhere in the world, and we can just live in a state of perpetual anger. But is it, like, can I actually do something about this? So if that's going to turn me towards something constructive and praying for that person, praying for that politician, praying for, for, for the people that are engaged in this abhorrent behavior, great. But I need to recognize my limits. Sometimes I've gotten the most upset when I've gotten offended on someone else's behalf. When someone has done wrong to somebody and, and it's like freaked me out and I've lost sleep. And then I've had to recognize, oh, I actually don't have control over that. I, I have to recognize my own responsibilities. Then use a good lightning rod. All that means is maybe have a safe place where you can just, where you can vent and and. Use language that maybe you shouldn't be using publicly and, and express, real, express how you're feeling, but where it's with a safe space. It's someone who's not going to get offended and that's going to help, help you actually turn it around in, into processing it in a healthy, godly, constructive way. I'm so grateful. There's an older retired minister that I've been able to speak to for years now. And I remember the one day I was so angry. I was, really, I was genuinely looking to quit the church. That's how angry I was over something. This is years ago. And I'm so grateful that I had a safe place that I could go to and just express how upset, and I, doesn't, it takes a lot to get me upset, how freaked out and upset I was and why. And, but I did it in, a, in, a, in an honorable way, I think. But I'm so grateful that I had a safe space and where he was able to, to almost like absorb some of that lightning and just help earth Things. And lastly, we respond. So, so there might be something that needs to be done. So do it, but make sure that we are going through the appropriate steps. So our heart matters. Number two, just very simply, real unity matters. Now I struggled as to which word emphasize that. So we've emphasized unity, but in my own notes, I've like underlined and italicized and made in bold the word real because I think way too often as Christians, we can settle for false peace and for a facade of, of unity. Unity doesn't mean that we agree with everything. Unity doesn't mean that we all like each other. It is possible, and this might sound like an insult, it's not. It is possible to love someone, but not like them, in the sense that you know it's, the, the chemistry isn't there, whatever the case is, but, but can I still value that person and, and within reason support that person, honor that person, pray for that person, real, Unity matters. False peace, in my opinion, is from the enemy. It's from the pit of hell. All right. Jesus goes on in verse 23. He says, therefore, you are offering your gift. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, right? So you don't even have something against them. Look at how radically committed Jesus is to reconciliation. You're at the altar. Now, bear in mind, Jesus is preaching this in Galilee, it's roughly 130 kilometers away from Jerusalem, which is where the offering would be made. So now imagine you've taken your, your live sacrifice, your goat, or whatever. You've traveled 130 kilometers. You're about to present your offering. And then you realize, oh, my neighbor's got an issue with me. Now, this, was, this, this is such an exaggeration that it would have to have been more of a metaphor than Jesus speaking literally. Jesus is basically saying, leave Fido at the temple and hike it all the way back, 130 kilometers back to Galilee, do everything you can to reconcile, and then come back. 
and present. So it's like travel for a week, go sort it out, come back, and then present your offering. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Please, I don't want you to miss this. It is not enough, Jesus is saying, to avoid murder. We need to avoid anger that leads to hatred. And similarly, he's saying it's not enough to offer gifts. Our tithes, our worship, our volunteering service. We must have right relationships with God and with others as much as it depends on us. I want to remind you that quite literally as the clock was counting down for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's about to be arrested. He knows. He's already had the Last Supper. He's already taken his disciples um, he, to, you know, through the olive grove. He's speaking about fruit and the vine and, and all that. And then one of the last things he does, one of the last prayers he prays as the clock is counting down to being arrested, tortured, and murdered, one of the last prayers he prays is for unity amongst his followers. Real unity matters. Number three, we need to pursue peace quickly. He goes on, last two verses, verse 25 and 26, he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary. So, so previously he's now talking about your brother, you know, he's been talking about our brothers and sisters, now he's talking about your adversary. So, so maybe this is someone that's, that's got a claim against you and they're taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. This, this, is, this was actually a debt prison which is something that would have been in the Gentile law. This wasn't part of the Jewish law. So it would have been quite offensive to the Jews as it is. But, but if you owed something to someone and they took you to court and you couldn't pay it, you'd be put into debt prison until you could pay it off, which is why in 20, verse 26 it says, truly I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. This was actually a picture of futility. This was a picture of impossibility. There was no way to pay off your debt when you're sitting in prison. So the rest of your life would have been spent in prison. Jesus, now I don't want us to get too focused on the issue of debt and going to court. I think that the main point that Jesus was trying to get at you is do everything you can and do it as quickly as you can. Which is why it encourages me in uh, Romans chapter 12 where, where Paul, the apostle, says as far as it depends on you, do everything that you can to live at peace with everybody. There are times, I want to acknowledge fully, that there are absolutely times where you've done everything you can. You've done what you can to reconcile. You've done what you can to sort an issue out before it goes to court. You've done what you can to resolve. And the other person is unwilling. I think that you can rest. I think you can breathe. Especially if we're first checking our hearts. Especially if we are praying for the person. Especially if we're saying, God, is there anything else that I can do? But it is impossible in this case to actually, to, Jesus is saying, I think if you're unwilling to forgive, if you're unwilling to, to reconcile, like, again, it's almost like a metaphor for an eternal type of punishment. The person who refuses to forgive his brother, 
destroys the very bridge over which he himself must walk. In Mark eleven twenty five, Jesus says, when you're praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. In Matthew chapter six, so that's still part of the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll get to at some other stage later in the year. Part of the Lord's Prayer, some of you are familiar with this, Jesus is saying that this is how we should pray. In verse 12, he says, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Then, verse 14, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, that, that is, I think, quite a confusing passage, and it's very easy for us to misunderstand and think, well, I thought that I was forgiven freely and by grace, and that's true. But I think that one of the results of me receiving that grace and mercy one of the fruits, one of the, one of the evidences, if that's correct English, which I doubt it is, one of the versions of evidence that I have actually accepted that forgiveness and that grace. I'm adamant that one of the fruit of that is I will be moved to forgive others. So if I'm refusing to forgive someone else, I think that that can only be possible if I am slowly but surely refusing to accept forgiveness from God. Or if I start convincing myself that I've somehow deserved his forgiveness, like I'm better than somebody else. So the only way for me to withhold forgiveness from somebody else is when I start rejecting the forgiveness from God. I think that that's what that passage is referring to. So in closing, a few tips on reconciliation. Number one, just very simply, just to get the log out of your eye. This is, again, this is a, this is a language that Jesus uses. So, so own what you need to. So again, start with me. Look in the mirror get the log out of my own eye. I need to own what I need to own. I don't think that you should own what you shouldn't own, right? I'm not saying take responsibility for everything. I'm saying take responsibility for what I need to take responsibility for. Secondly, glorify God. What might God want to achieve through this? How might God be honored and glorified? How might this be a good example of God's grace and mercy to me that I, that I respond to this in a constructive way and not just in a destructive way. I think I can glorify God when I remember who the real enemy is. See, when I fight against somebody as though they're the real enemy, I'm basically saying that they're in place of like Satan, and I'm going to fight them as though they were Satan. No, no, I'm forgetting who the real enemy is. There's, there's only one person who's actually trying to corrupt my heart and the person's heart that, I'm, that I've got a problem with, and there's only one person that is thrilled, well, him and his army, I guess, that is thrilled when I keep nurturing this malice and bitterness and hatred. So how can I glorify God? Get the log out of my eye. How can I glorify God? And then we need to actually go gently. But the emphasis is on the word go. So we need to actually do something. But I also want to encourage you to do it gently. There's so much in the Bible, including the fruit of the Spirit, about self-control, gentleness, kindness, patience, love. We need to go gently. Now when I say go, I'm saying don't just talk about the person. Talk to the person. Especially if I can just hone in for a few moments on Christian relationships. There is a place, I think, to talk to somebody, but that's if you're talking to somebody that is able to give you godly perspective. If I'm just talking to someone to, to just vent and to have them validate how offended I should be and how mistreated I've been, that, that's not gonna lead to life. 
That's not going to lead to fruit. I need to go so that I don't just talk about, but that I talk to the person with the intention of trying to work this out, even if it's not easy, even if there's even if real offenses and real issues. And again, that's if the person is even open to being spoken to. I, I, and this is different, by the way, to where, to where you're a victim. I'm not suggesting that you have to address your abuser. I'm, I'm talking about kind of like everyday relationships. Obviously, there are way more complex scenarios. And then lastly, to give up control of the other person. Give up control of the other person. Sometimes we are so distracted by a sense of wanting to control the other person and wanting to control the outcome. There's only one person that I have control over, and that's me. I wish I had control over others, but to be honest, I struggle to control myself. I need all the energy I can just to control my own emotions, my own anger, my own to God, my own heart. But let me not make it hard for other people. If I'm needing to work towards reconciliation, let me do everything I can to make it easy for us to come to a solution and conclusion. If the person's not willing, that's on them. That's in between them and God. Because again, God will be the judge of them and us. Give up control. Maybe you've been working on a relationship for a really long time and you are just so burdened and drained by the lack of progress. Give over control to God. But even then, don't try and control God because even God won't control a person. You may be doing everything right and God may be doing everything that He can to knock on that, the door of that person's heart, to tap on their shoulder, to get their attention, to, to try and get them to change their heart, to, to invite them towards life. You may be doing everything right, God may be doing everything right, and the other person may still reject it all. That's out of your control. God won't even manipulate and control the person. The only person that tries to control someone else is the devil. We cannot control people. We can only take responsibility for our own hearts. Jesus is radically committed to us guarding our hearts and towards working constantly towards reconciliation. I'm about to pray in a moment. And as I do, I want to encourage you to think of a situation that maybe the Holy Spirit is bringing to your mind. Maybe, maybe that same person or that same situation has come up a few times and maybe that's within your control, maybe it's not. And, and really the invitation is just to actually let it go and just to pray for the person. There's nothing more that you can do practically, but maybe there is a situation where you can do something. You see, it's easy for us to think of what's happened in South Africa the last couple of weeks or what's happened over the last several decades in South Africa or what happened in, in World War I and II or in Rwanda. Or, it's easy for us to think of these massive scenarios, but what about between a husband and a wife? What about between a parent and a child or a child and a parent? What about between a brother and a sister or a brother and a brother? What about between a Christian and a colleague? God, where do I need to see the person through your eyes and do everything possible to work towards reconciliation? Father, please, in Jesus' name, would you help us, each one of us, everyone listening, everyone watching, help us to hear you. 
Maybe we've been quick to want to defend in our own minds and reject and qualify and justify. God, <laughs> help us to hear you. Yeah, but, and what about, and that shouldn't be, yeah, but God, help us to hear you. Help us to trust you with the results. Help us to, to release the other person. Help us to surrender ourselves. Help us to pray for the other person, but to release control, release the outcome. But God, help us to surrender our own hearts to you. And God, as a church, as, as believers, and, and not just part of this one church, but God, as part of the global church, the big C church, please, God, forgive us, forgive Christians for the amount of judgment that is passed publicly in so many cases. Forgive us in our own church where, where we haven't been quick to reconcile and quick to address issues and, and lean into the discomfort and the pain and the mess, but to work for real peace, for real unity, for real love. Forgive us, God, and help us to do what we can. Help us to hear you and help us to obey you. Remind us that unless we actually obey, unless we actually practice the way of Jesus and teach others to do the same, we're gonna be called the least in the kingdom. God, please help us to take this seriously. This is your manifesto. These are your invitations to life. And Lord, where there's someone watching that is just almost paralyzed with pain, from some grotesque situation that's taken place. God, even in, even in those places, even in those moments, Lord, I pray that you'd bring peace, that you'd bring healing, and that your Holy Spirit would speak so clearly as to what forgiveness looks like, as to what releasing it looks like. And if there's anything that can be done by this person, God, Lord, that, that we would simply know what that is and obey you and trust you with the rest. Lord, help us to be radically committed to loving people. Help us to be radically committed to real unity. Help us to be radically committed to reconciliation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.